Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you guys are coping with the safer at home situation. I know many places, the orders are still going and I hope you guys are staying home and you're healthy and safe. If you have some time, I encourage you to check out the quiz I developed. So sometimes people are coming into me, whether my clients or my friends and telling me, you know, I just don't have a sex life that I would want to have. And I think there's something wrong, but I don't know exactly what needs to be my first next step. And I think that's important to have self-awareness, but sometimes when we are immersed in, in some situation, whether it's sexual challenges that we have or any other life challenges, uh, we might not know objectively what would be the good next phase. So I developed this, this quiz. I worked on it for a few months and specifically for women. So you're answering different questions about different aspects of your life. And in the results, we'll tell you about what are some of the primary areas right now that gets in the way of you having a sex life that you would like to have and deserve to have. And in the result, we share with you that what can you do next to gather more information about the resources on that areas, whether it's in your relationship or if it's physiological challenges you have. So if, if you're a woman, I highly encourage you to take the quest. This is our second episode in our shame series. And I'm very excited to share one of the interviews I did with one of the psychologists that I love and respect, Dr. Holly Richman. We're going to talk about the experience of shame, specifically in survivors of sexual assault or child abuse. So if you experience some kind of sexual trauma in the past, you might hopefully were able to address some of the immediate challenges that you have. But what I know in my practice, what I experienced with my client is that at times people are, although they don't have those symptoms, early symptoms, they continue to struggle to have good sexual experiences long term. So they either have to get drunk to have sex or at times tell me they feel nothing in their genital. So there could be different presentations. So we're going to talk about what are some of the common presentation, how does shame show up in your body during sex? And as always, we're going to talk about what you can do to address it. As I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Dr. Holly Richmond, she was on one of our previous episodes. She talks about sex bots, which was fantastic. Teledonic, sex robot, all of those things are part of her specialty. But the reason that I decided to invite her as an expert for this episode is that I saw her present at Finding Eros, which was a conference put by Esther Perel in New York last fall when we were able to go out and her presentation was fabulous. She talked about experience of survivors and how you can get through some of the challenges you might experience. That's why I said, okay, I gotta have Holly back on the show. She's a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist and licensed marriage and family therapist with offices in New York, New Jersey, Los Angeles and Portland, Oregon. This unique combination of credentials enables her 
to focus on clients' cognitive processing as well as mind body health. You can read her full bio, which is very impressive in the show notes, and you can check out her website. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Holly Richman. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. It's my honor to have Dr. Holly Richman back on our show. Dr. Richman, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am so excited to have you on this show. I know that sexual trauma treatment is one of your specialties. And when we were thinking about this series, I thought, oh my God, we got to have Dr. Richman back. <laughs> and I recently attended one of the presentation and talk you had about this topic. So I'm very looking forward with this to this conversation. So tell me, when I know you work with survivors. Mm-hmm. And when I also see survivors in my practice, I know Notice there are some shame around sex and sexuality in light of what, ex- what they experience. So tell us, what, uh, why do some survivors experience shame around sex? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to answer this question, but I think you've heard me say this before. I usually work in how questions mm-hmm. instead of why questions, just because of my somatic psychology background. Mm-hmm. But I do, I want to get a little heady with this first question that makes sense so we really understand it. I think there's two things particularly that are happening with survivors of sexual trauma. The first thing that elicits shame is that it's about sex. And most of us were never taught how to talk about sex. We weren't taught that it was a natural and highlight here pleasurable piece of being a human being, part of the human experience. So the fact that it is sexual in nature, I just think it makes it so hard for people to talk about. So we've got one layer of not being able to talk about it. The layer under that is it becomes a secret. The layer under that becomes it's shameful right? So I have to hide this because if I talk about it, people will think I'm horrible. People will think, I mean, my clients come up with all kinds of things that they believe people will think about them because they have experienced sexual trauma. So the sexual piece of it is one thing. The next thing that elicits shame is often the survivor feels complicit in the abuse or in what happened. So with sexual abuse survivors in particular, so sexual abuse is when it when it's not consensual because they are underage or because developmentally or emotionally they can't give consent. But in these relationships, it is a relationship. It's an important person in this person's life, a figurehead, someone in power. And, and in the beginning, they get some nice things out of the relationship, but then it becomes abusive. But the story in their head becomes, oh, I, you know, I've known my uncle for years and years and years, and he used to be so nice, and I didn't notice fast enough that his niceness got abusive or, you know, it became inappropriate, but I kept going back. I kept going back to his house. So in that way, it's my fault. Or with a woman that is date raped on a date on a on a date, she tells herself, "I went to the bar by myself. I drank too much. I actually invited him back to my apartment." So in these ways, I am complicit. None of those stories are true, of course. The only reason we're raped is because we were in the presence of a rapist. I love that. And I heard you saying that statement before and I keep using it with your yes. permission because yes. people have so many misconceptions when it comes to that. Like, you know, my, maybe my clothing was provocative. Maybe I started making out with the person. Therefore, I gave them permission to do other things that it was non-consensual. And I love right. that you talked about the sexual abuse piece because many of my clients 
when they were kind of like under experienced those abuse, they experienced some sexual pleasure and right. there's nothing wrong with that, but they feel so guilt because it's, it's how our body responds. It doesn't mean like you right. consented to that, but that can also become very confusing. Absolutely. Yeah. So our body works for us, right? It's adaptive. Those responses to pleasure, which are lubrication or an erection, like our bodies sometimes don't know in the beginning, like what's traumatic and and it's just responding to sensation. So for men, they'll get erections and for women will lubricate. And actually that lubrication process is adaptive because if we didn't, we would tear and the damage can be, could be worse than what it was. So, but this is scary for survivors. I've had so many of my clients say, I feel like my body went without me, mm-hmm. or I feel like my body betrayed me, right? When, when it was just trying to be adaptive and do the best job it could to save us. Right. And I think the other piece of it, it's about kind of like the culture and kind of like the, the questions that some, some of the survivors receive from other people. Recently, I've been reading Shannon Miller book, Know My Name, mm-hmm. and it was so powerful to see like even in the, criminal justice system the question that was asked of her like you were drinking what kind of a relationship you have your with your boyfriend like it was relevant at all right right things that are not relevant at all to what happened between the survivor and her perpetrator i mean we saw it in the harvey weinstein case mm-hmm. too just want to give a shout out that we are recording this on the day that he was just sentenced to 23 mm-hmm. years Thank yes God. Finally, yes. some justice. I know. Finally, some justice. So again, yes, if we can keep keep our focus on what actually happened during that horrible event, that again helps survivors let themselves off the hook. When we let ourselves off the hook, we can disconnect from shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. what was my place in this? Your place was that you couldn't say no at that moment. You didn't know what was happening but you definitely did not give consent. You did not want this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know in Italy, there was a case of a woman who's, who removed her clothing and that, that also was part of the defense for the, for the perpetrator. So I'm mm-hmm. glad we made some progress in this area, but unfortunately we have a long way to go. And I'm so glad that to specifically have you in the show to talk about this because I know somatic experiencing is one of your areas of specialties. And I experimented with different approaches for clients. I'm not a somatic experience, uh, like, like a, a somatic experience and certified person, but based mm-hmm. on my experience, I feel when it comes to trauma, specifically around sexual assault trauma, somatic part of it, it's very big because what happens is many people work through, at least when I see my practice through some of those painful memories they feel it's they kind of work through them but when they are intimate with the partner or even with themselves it's really hard for them to show up for pleasure and they have all sorts of challenges so tell us when it comes to sexual shame after trauma how people usually feel that in their body during sex Right. Yeah. And this is a great question. So, so sexual trauma happens both in the mind and the body, right? So there's a violation of emotional boundaries and there's a violation of the, 
of the physical boundary. So in my practice, it just, it didn't make sense to me to treat sexual trauma without treating the body. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, my favorite questions is what's more somatic than sex? Mm-hmm. Not much, really not much. So sex is about sensations. So when we're treating sexual trauma, I'll often go to sensations. I'll go to body language, rigidity, laxity, noticing little twitches, noticing lack of eye contact, all of these things that can guide me to more of a felt sense of how the survivor is experiencing the trauma rather than what she thinks about it. Because you're right, like we can process the heck out of things and be cognitive about that experience, but it still isn't integrated. Right. And I know integrated people are like, what does that mean? To me, I guess one of my favorite definitions is stop fighting so much. Integration is letting things settle, being still, moving throughout your life, not trying so hard to fix yourself because believe it or not, you're not broken. All of these pieces, integration is a mind body knowing, not just knowing in your head. I love that. And I, I love your focus on integration piece because the way I was taught to work with trauma was through prolonged exposure. And I know that some people do well with that. They think that the somatic piece of it, it's missing. So again, people are able to process kind of like kind of not necessarily struggle with even at times with flashbacks, all of those challenging part, cognitive part of things. But I think, as you said, sex, big part of it is physiological and somatic. And I think that's important to address that. So, for example, like, you know, some of my clients, they talk about the numbness. They don't Mm -hmm. feel anything during sex. And that's. That they'd say it's related to their experience. So what can they do? Like, what do you recommend people to show up for their body if, if what they're experiencing is the numbness? Yeah, absolutely. Or with any, almost any kind of sexual symptom like that. So we've got numbness, numbness, pain during sex, erectile dysfunction issues, anorgasmia, dissociating, dissociating. So just how I see it, my, my clients talk about kind of hovering above themselves, like not being in their body, but they can kind of see what's going on. For all of those, I will, again, start with the body and touch sensation. So it's almost, I call it a modified sensate focus protocol. So I would just have them start with touching their forearm. So using their hand to to touch their forearm lightly and then expand that to the top portion of their body, then their bottom portion of their body, then their genitals. And this is happening over a week and week and week process, helping them get kind of back in touch with what it feels like to touch themselves, what sensation feels like. And then after probably six to eight weeks of doing this, and perhaps even some insertion at some point, or techniques like edging to work with with erection issues, then if there's a partner involved in the process, then the partner would be invited back in. But I am all for treating the individual before we treat the couple when I'm working with with a survivor. That makes sense because at times people hear about this kind of like mindfulness aspect of things and they're telling me, for example, if it's a sex uh, intercourse is painful, Mm -hmm. they say it's incredibly hard to show up for that. And what would be the point of it in the midst of this pain for me paying attention to the pain? So I like that you have this gradual approach of perhaps you can 
start with the parts that not or even not, they're not even sexual. So, right. to, so you can reacquaint yourself to the sensation of touch. Right. Absolutely. And then if that doesn't work, and I don't want to say that sometimes that doesn't work. So then you would need a pelvic floor therapist in the case, mm-hmm. in the case of pain during sex. So again, I should have said at the beginning, I work with the body, but I am not a doctor in that way. So with any physical maladies like that, I'm always going to refer out to an OBGYN or, you know, they're at least their general care physician. You know, it's interesting that the pattern that I see, and maybe you see it at times as well with survivors, is the trauma reenactment piece. That they they kind of put themselves in the situation, they want to have the same sexual experiences, and it kind of creates more of the same for that for them. So, how do you help people to get through that piece? Yeah, I I love that you just nailed it. So, when if, let's say a survivor comes in to see me twelve years after her trauma, and she says, "I cannot maintain a healthy relationship. I have a horrible relationship to sex. Maybe I'm compulsive with my porn use." I have rape fantasies all of the time. Super common for survivors to have rape fantasies. Here's the patterns I keep keep creating for myself. A question I love to ask is, what do you want the outcome to be, right? What do you want the outcome to be? Because you know how to get the outcome you keep having. So what are you really looking for? Because I feel like the trauma reenactment is a way for us to gain control over a situation we didn't have control of the first time. But then we get stuck at the end and we go for the end that we experienced, not the end that we want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I know many people, they keep repeating the same thing and they don't know this is what's going on. And they say like, you know, why I have this compulsive kind of use of porn or I put myself in the situation with the people that are not healthy and they don't have the awareness around that. But I think what is tricky at time is that they connect that to their erotic blueprint. They say, like, Mm -hmm. this is what's hard for me. And if I have, quote, unquote, more of a vanilla sex or more of a safe sex, that's not going to be as exciting for me. How how can people navigate that piece? Yeah, that is, again, so common. I have them experiment with all kinds of sex. I'll say, hey, I know your go-to is being tied up. Like, that's the thing that turns you on most. But what if for this week you experiment with missionary vanilla sex? The next week you experiment with just sensuality. What feels sensual to you? The next week, I mean, it could be doing something different with your partner just so that their repertoire expands because you're right, boy, they find that one thing that gets them off fast and they go right for it every time. And a lot of times that thing that gets them off is a reenactment of the trauma, (laughs) right? Joe Court says trauma doesn't inform. Oh, how does he say it? Do you know what I mean? He says it it doesn't like inform our sexuality. It misinforms it. Mm, Yeah, something like that. He says it better, but Mm -hmm. yeah. No, that absolutely makes sense. And I I really like that you're talking about people increasing their repertoire of the things they enjoy. Because how can that be a negative thing? It's not necessarily like even for anyone that thinking about, okay, if this is uh, one thing that you enjoy, what else you can add to the toolbox? And specifically for uh, survivors, I think that can be a good tool if there is a trauma 
reenactment piece so they can kind of like incorporate other things that perhaps might not be re-traumatized, re-traumatizing right. them. So one, one, one of the unhealthy ways that people are coping with sexual trauma piece is kind of trauma reenactment with kind of like mm-hmm. choosing the people that there's situations that are not safe for them in order to get some mastery around that experience. But what are some other unhealthy ways that you see some of the survivors try to work through these challenges? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because it's just still unbelievable and and surprising, but beautiful to me that uh, survivors don't make the connection between point A and point B. So they'll come into me 10 years or more after, sometimes five, and they'll have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. They'll have substance abuse issues, body dysmorphia. So much of what I see is in the body though, eating disorders being the top one. So just a disordered relationship with exercise and food. And again, this doesn't have to be like a full-blown diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, but it is not healthy. So they're e- either super controlled around food and exercise in their body or they're in chaos with it. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens with substances. So people can misuse, you know, overuse alcohol, overuse drugs Or on the flip side of that, which kind of comes back to the food, but it's substance related, they're like completely vegan. They're not that that's a bad thing, but their diet is just very, very restricted. So they're really in some ways controlling pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I would say those are the things that I see most. And then just dysfunctional relationships, just an inability to maintain a healthy relationship. Right. I I also see a lot of struggles with uh, eating and kind of like trying either to restrict the pleasure or not having a healthy relationship with it. And what I notice is even when with my clients that they are in more of a restrictive kind of part of the eating disorder uh, spectrum is that as they restrict their sexuality disappear, the desire disappear. And that's, that's so interesting. And it's connected to the feeling that they, at times that they have that like, I just want to get disappeared because of this happened to me and I'm not worthy right. to be around. Right. A question that I love around this is what can't you take in? Mm-hmm. Love you know, that. It's just a somatic question because mm-hmm. it's, for women especially. So what can't you take in, you know, eating wise, drinking wise, but what can't you let into your body sexually? Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. What a beautiful way of uh, phrasing that. And you're right that it's whether it's food, it's pleasure, it's any sort of pleasure. People are at times they, they're restricted or they go overboard with it. Board. The other interesting pattern that I see that you mentioned is relationship with unhealthy relationship with substances. So many of my clients, they tell me like, you know, the trauma, although it happened years ago, ever since they need to be drunk to have sex. Right. Otherwise, they cannot have sex. And that can be very complicated for, for them, for their partner, around even consent, experiencing pleasure in your body. So that's another thing that I see a lot in my practice. Absolutely. And I think with alcohol in particular, and probably weed too, it it gives us that numbing effect, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have to feel as much. So there, I would say, what are you afraid of feeling? Like Mm -hmm. what, what is so hard to feel? Why, Why is it so hard to be present? Because I think alcohol and drugs both take away our ability to be fully present. 
And then I would have them start experimenting with, with presence. When I work with any kind of compulsivity, I never take it away 100%. I will take it away 20%. I will take it away 25%, work with that for two weeks, mm-hmm. and then add it back in, and then pull it away again. So so we're playing with control. It's not, you know, it's not like we, we are eliciting control of our clients. Like they're very much involved in this process. And let's have a conversation about how we can work with this together. Such a thoughtful way of approaching it, because it's my experience when you remove those things and these things are helping people. There is some reason that they're using it and it kind of creates a kind of sense of hopelessness in people. They feel like they can either not do it or they're not even able to have sex. So I love that you are having this approach of kind of being going with clients, kind of level of motivation, readiness, and experimenting with what works for them specifically and what doesn't. And also I'm thinking about many of my male clients when they are using substances to kind of perform and function well during sexual experiences, it creates a number of different challenges. And I'm sure it's similar for women, but I see in my practice with my male clients that they drink too much and they have issues around erectile functioning. They have issues around having being able to have sex when they're not drunk. So they're kind of creating a host of secondary issues for them. Right, right. And with, with my male clients that way too, I, I take them on a little Sensate focus journey. But again, I'm using Sensate focus loosely because I design every protocol for that specific client. So it would just be again about getting them in touch with the sensations in their body, trying to be fully present and not using a substance. Mm-hmm. But, but you're right, it, it is scary. And thank you for saying kind of the more mindful, gentle approach, I think, and it sounds like you think too, tends to work better than just like ripping the dysfunctional thing away because it is, it's 100% serving a purpose and they're just doing the best job they can with the tools they have. Absolutely. And I know we we use Sensate Focus for years and years because it works. I think one of those great techniques in sex therapy that works. I know that at times to clients, it doesn't sound like exciting. It doesn't sound interesting. And it's hard for them to get on board with that. But it's one of those things that I, I consistently experience it being very effective for host of issues. I do too. Yeah. So we talked about some of the challenges that people experience. We talked about painful intercourse, erectile functioning issues around numbness. Any other sexual dysfunction that you've noticed in your clients that is a result of experiencing trauma? I mean, vaginismus and dyspareunia for sure, but those are uh, kind of within the sexual pain disorders, but I would go the same route. I'm trying to think of anything else. Mostly for men, they will have trouble getting an erection and maintaining erection with a partner, but they are fine on their own. I would say with my male survivors, that is the thing I see the most. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's working with erectile issues that aren't organic, but they're psychogenic, meaning mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with the functioning of their penis. It's psychogenic, meaning it's, it's elicited because of anxiety and fear. Mm-hmm. Right, that I see that a lot. And it could be combination of things. And even at right. times could be issues with desire, as we see, right. because sometimes people have these negative experiences that they saw it 
and in the light of sex and sexuality, which was which is not related at all. It's more about aggression and control and all of those negative things. But it's hard for them to kind of have the positive relationship with sex and sexuality, and that that impacts their desire. So if there are people who are struggling with kind of like having some sexual challenges because of the trauma, what are some of the steps that you recommend people to take in order to address that? Absolutely. Well, I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, find some resources. So either find some books for survivors or find a therapist that is trained in treating sexual trauma. This is really important to me. And I'm assuming because readers are, or your listeners are listening to you, they know this. Most therapists are not trained in sexual health. My fear is that someone would go to just a trauma specialist and not get a sex positive therapist. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about sex positive, it's all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. So can you imagine a survivor going to a trauma informed therapist who is really into BDSM and says, I love to be tied up during sex because this is what happened to me. And that therapist is just freaking out because BDSM is not in their their toolbox of being a normal, pleasurable, consensual kind of sex. Mm. And the client ends up getting shamed even more. Right. Right. Or I really like watching this kind of porn and that therapist automatically goes to, oh my gosh, you sound like a porn addict or a sex addict. Let's get you in treatment, which just, yeah, it's, it can be incredible, incredibly disheartening for them and not productive at all. So find some books and therapists that are sexual health trained mental health professionals. The other thing you can do is just focus on your own pleasure, which I love giving this as homework. So this is not just sexual, but figure out what turns you on, what brings you pleasure. Does dancing bring you pleasure? Does eating strawberries dipped in chocolate, dirty martinis, sitting in front of a fire, walking on a beach, just takes a week or two weeks to Move through your life, move through your world, and take in all of the things you notice that bring you pleasure. And then the next step is what do you find sexy? So the, the pleasure piece is more about desire and what, what kind of pulls us mentally, where the what turns us on piece is more about arousal and what excites us physiologically. I love that. What a great yeah. recommendations. And I yeah. like the first piece of kind of opening yourself to a pleasure period because I feel right. like many people are learned, first of all, the pleasure, like focusing on pleasure is negative like a, a moral of like, you know, right. like high working, high achieving people, they don't value pleasure as much. Yeah. So it's all works. So I like that you're focusing on that. And also kind of exploring what gives you pleasure. Because many of times, many of my clients, they get frustrated with their partner, they're not giving me orgasm, I, I, this is not working for me, but they have no awareness around their own sexual pleasure patterns and what gives them pleasure. So that that helps them with feeling more empowered when it comes to this kind of experiences. Yeah, so true. I have met very few people who use the word pleasure when they tell me about their sex education or what they know about sex. It's just usually all the don'ts. Don't get pregnant. Don't get an STI, right? Mm -hmm. Don't give yourself away too soon. Don't be a slut. Don't be all of these don'ts. But rarely do I hear, oh, I was taught it was supposed to feel good, right? So that's where I love to start. Yes, yes. So important. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. even in the relationship, when people come again in a long-term relationship to, to my office and saying that I want to do this for my partner, it seems mm-hmm. like part of them, they don't even give themselves permission to see, okay, right. this is something I enjoy and it's important. 
So I right. like that you have that focus on pleasure. I, I can talk to you about this for hours. <laughs> and I love watching your videos. I came to your presentation and I think you're very knowledgeable in this area. And we're just oh, scrap the, scratch the surface. So if people want to learn more about your writings, about the presentations, all the great work that you do, where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. My website is a great place to start. So it's dr hollyrichmond.com and I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Dr. Holly Richmond. And most of the time it's D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. So Excellent. that's the abbreviation. Yeah, Great, absolutely. great. So I, I leave a link in the show notes to all those links. I, I follow Dr. Richmond myself on Instagram. It I think is. the content Perfect. is fantastic. And also, guys, please make sure you're checking out her website. I know you have a wonderful library of content. I and, I, I'm, and I'm sure people will find it helpful. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you for coming on and the show again. It was lovely to talk to you. You too. I hope you found the conversation useful and it gave you motivation that to help yourself or your loved one, if anyone is struggling with being able to have a healthy sexual life, post-assault. This is an area that I'm very passionate about because I feel many people think, okay, I had this experience with trauma and I will never be able to have a good sex life. And I think because of what you experience, you also deserve more than rest of us to reclaim your sexuality. I'm very passionate about this because I don't want you to lose lose part of you because of what happened to you. My dissertation was on post-traumatic growth. And I truly believe that with getting appropriate help and support, people can actually experience growth after trauma and your life might get even significantly better. So if if you are interested to reclaim your sexual health, definitely start working with a sex therapist that can help you navigate this route and problem solve some of the challenges that you might experience that we talked about. Anyhow, as always, I'm very grateful for every single one of you guys that tune into this episode. And if you have been listening to this show, please show us some love by leaving reviews on iTunes or Stitchers. It's really helping us with visibility, helping us to reach a broader audience. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.